Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Aloha, investors. We have a remote Q&A episode today with Jeff Rimsberg. Jeff, welcome to the show. What's happening? We should start calling these Jeff Jeffisodes, maybe episodes. Um, anyway, I'm here on the island of Kauai on a uh, cacao farm. So, listeners, you may hear some roosters and birds in the background. Uh, if you do, just uh, just accept it as being the sitting on a farm and the authenticity that goes with that. Uh, Jeff is local in the office in Los Angeles. Things have never run smoother around the office with you out. Yeah, I, I should stay away more often. I like to call this a writing sabbatical, but I, I'm not getting much writing done. So um, I don't know what to call this, a reading sabbatical perhaps. But uh, a, a few logistics before we start into our Q&A. You know, so as we're, we're coming up on a little over half a year, three quarters of a year on the podcast. It's been a blast. You know, we're going to start to think of a little more interesting segues. You know, currently we do one episode per week on Wednesdays. On, on occasion, you know, most of the uh, formats are a Q&A with a, a fun guest, and then we do sometimes Q&A with, with Jeff and I. We've done a few kind of audio books or research pieces, and we've had a lot of great feedback. So, one, if you have any feedback on the show going forward, say, hey, shoot us an email. Say, what I really like, would love to see more, you know, Matt doing deep research dive into a particular topic or an audio book on the books that we've published, or perhaps maybe we'll have some solo Jeff episodes. Whatever you guys think, shoot an email, feedback at themethfavorshow.com. Also, uh, it's important to us. Jeff reads every one of these, so please leave a review. Only like 0.1% of you have left your review, so shame on you. If you're listening right now, pull your car over, pull up iTunes, give us a review, good, bad, doesn't matter. To be honest, uh, we really appreciate it. We put a lot of work into this, so... But but open to fun ideas going forward. So if you guys got any ideas, uh, please let us know. As well as sending us questions, uh, we we certainly read a lot of these on the air. We're going to read some today, and uh, let's let's get started. Anything else before we get started, Jeff? Well, I think uh, you know this episode is slightly different. You mentioned it's Q and A. We're going to read some of the questions on air. This episode is slightly different in the fact that I think we're going to focus a bit more on your personal tweets and some questions that come from that. Just. Uh, in the nature of what you mentioned a moment ago, trying some new uh, concepts to see if people enjoy it. So this one's a less of a listener-generated Q&A and uh, more of more of a MEB-generated in a sense. Uh, one of the ideas is maybe we could use this as uh, a way to try to get more in your mind. I mean, I, I'm a retail investor, and one of my questions, obviously, is how do I... Uh, more closely emulate the mindset of more professional money managers. So if something's striking your interest or you're 
uh, especially intrigued by something that to the point where you're uh, tweeting or posting about it, you know, I'm curious as to what about that has caught your interest and what I can learn from it myself and, and doing that, maybe try to hone my sense of the market. And, and we got to, you know, it's interesting we kind of grow in different parts of social media and publishing take hold. I mean, we've been publishing on Twitter for a long time, but Twitter also, you know, isn't going to reach the vast majority of the people who are listening to this podcast for whatever reason. Maybe it's because they're not on Twitter at the time. If I tweet something brilliant tonight at midnight, you know, who's going to see it? Probably, probably a very small fraction of people. And, and most people don't go back and read someone's entire timeline. So one of the features we do, I think is one of the most valuable research pieces I put out consistently. I don't think anyone really cares. And so maybe that we need to find a better medium for it. Maybe we should develop an app or something else where there's two levels of curation we do. One is we do the tweets of the week and where I go and pick like 20 of the best tweets of the week. It usually comes out every two weeks or so. So maybe it's the tweets of the last two weeks, but it's the best investment quotes or research pieces or ideas from other people as well as stuff we publish. And it's a awesome compilation, but you know, I, I don't know that it's something that people really use or love that much. And then on the much more involved side, of course, is the idea farm, which is the more highly curated professional targeted research pieces that we think are, are actionable, either process or ideas. So do you guys got any good ideas? Maybe I don't know. Maybe we'll de- develop an app, Jeff. I was just thinking about that this morning. But anyway, so let's talk about some of the tweets of the week. Uh, maybe do you have any any in particular you want to chat about from the last uh, publication that we did? We also post these on the blog, by the way. So, yeah, uh, listeners, you can follow along. I'm going to basically be uh, using uh, Meb's recent tweets of the weeks as our uh, basis for questions here. So yeah, Meb, we'll just bounce around a little bit. One of the first that I'm curious about is one of the posts suggested after you read Buffett's new letter to investors, read this. And that was about uh, your post you've referenced a few times where Buffett's long term returns tend to crush everyone's, though he's underperformed the market in seven of the last nine years. This makes me think of that question. I think it was Ed Thorpe you asked. Uh, it's the one where how do you know when a strategy has failed versus when is it time to remain faithful to it as you know, reversion to the mean is likely to uh, give it a bounce pretty quickly. I think Thorpe's answer was generally you need to do your homework so that you know whether your drawdown is within the normal range of probabilities or something unique. So as a retail investor listens to that and thinks about taking it from the theoretical to the practical, how do you really do that? How do you implement that? You know, let's say you're a, like a dividend investor are you supposed to look over the last, you know, five years, 10 years, three decades of historical market data and try to do this on your own? Or what are the best resources for giving yourself this knowledge here? We can start from the simple to the much more complex. So the simple is starting with, say, asset class level data, you know, and we have over 115 years of very quality data on global stock returns and global bond returns. And so you have a pretty good idea of what can happen there. And Okay, well, let me stop there. Where does the retail investor find this, first of all? So the first and best stop for that, and there's a number of publications. There's the classic Ibbotson yearbook, which I think they still publish, uh, which you can find online. There is a uh, the one that we always recommend. You know, My favorite investing book is called Triumph for the Optimist. It's a little outdated, but there's a yearly update called the Global Investment Returns Yearbook. 
and that's published in concert with Credit Suisse. And they publish that every year, and it takes stock returns for developed and emerging markets going back all the way to 1900. And it's a wonderful, really kind of step-back view of what stocks and bonds have done over the past 115 years or 120 years or whatever it is. And so um, you get a lot of perspective there. So on any one market, in, in the case of the United States, you say, okay, I know that stocks historically have done about 5% real meaning after inflation, so tack on inflation, you get up to that historical kind of 9% level, 10%, just to, to round off. So I know that historically stocks have done about 5% a year. But the, the good and the bad of that is that, you know, that includes times when they went down by half, you know, in 08 globally, and any one market can go down 80 to 100%. You know, the U.S. has, has gone down over 80% in the Great Depression, as well as individual markets, you know, based on kind of government shutting down the, the markets in general, essentially had a complete destruction of wealth in countries like China and Russia. So that's 100% loss. But a global portfolio, you certainly need to expect a 50% loss, but it could get worse. And so that, that's kind of your baseline, right? 5% returns, you're going to go through losses of a third regularly. You're going to go through, you know, worst case scenarios where you lose 80. And so that's kind of the baseline, right? And then most people say, well, okay, well, I'm, I'm, they kind of ignore the bad side and the possibilities of that, but, but that's the base case. And then you add bonds and you say, okay, bonds historically have done about 2% real after inflation. So add inflation, that gets you back up to 5 6 7%. And then bills or cash basically keep up with inflation, but about 1% real after inflation. And so that's why they yield very low today. But uh, but they also have their own drawdowns and losses. Historically, bonds, you say, well, they only lose about 20% of their worst drawdowns. But if you include inflation on a real basis, they, they also lose about half. And so there's, you know, you put that portfolio together, it's obviously going to be less volatile, but, but that gives you the perspective. So asset class level is easy because we have a ton of data, right? And the future, you know, what we always say is that um, normal investment returns aren't normal. You know, it's something like 75% of stock returns are either higher on a given year or higher than 15% or less than zero. So that normal zero to 10% range that everyone expects, which is the average is, is rarely, rarely happens. And so now the, the more complicated question is, if you're using an active strategy or a factor or a tilt. Yeah, I, th- I think that's where I was going is let's arbitrarily pick um, you know, a factor investor, you're a dividend investor. You know, how do you, in a sense, overlay the drawdowns you're referencing and the, the broader market with more of that targeted uh, dividend yield that's going to fluctuate up and down, up and down, potentially giving you signals as to when to get out or, or uh, buy in? Right. And so, and so right before we get to that, so on the stocks and bonds level, you know, that's if you buy and hold and you have a 50-year time horizon. You know, at the same time, I think it's totally reasonable to take a step back and say, look, can we use basic common sense to say, Hey, look at it from a, like we talked about with a podcast with Thorpe, is there simple common sense we can use to when placing this bet, this speculation to put the odds in our favor and not do something really dumb. So the case of valuations for stocks, for example, you know, when stocks from the late nineties trading a P of 45, is that a reasonable time to ex- expect historical returns? No, of course not. Is it, in the 80s in Japan, was it reasonable when they were trading at 90 plus times PE 
do you still expect normal returns? No. And the same thing is on the flip side when they're trading a PE of five. So you, you want to be able to have a little bit of common sense, you know, and, and I think this is particularly interesting now as, as U.S. stocks inch up around that PE of 30, which, which historically has, has been quite high, but mm-hmm. they've been 45 before. So it's, it's, they can still go up 50% from here. Um, well, as Ram just so, said, but, you know, if the market is destined to uh, melt up, it's got room to go. Yeah. Of course. And, and so, and there's no reason it can't, you know, it's, it's simply animal spirits. What are people willing to pay? And so as you're looking at active strategies, so dividends or maybe something even more esoteric for most people like managed futures is, can you understand the strategy and can you understand common sense wise, why it may not be a good time for that strategy? So if a strategy goes through underperformance, can you say, okay, that made sense. I understand why that happened. You know, trend following is so basic. It's so easy. So you understand why trend following had a monster year in 08. But you can also understand why it may not have had as good of a period in 09 and the, and the years to follow. And then looking back on it, now it's harder to predict. And it's funny, you know, we get so many investor emails. And they'll say, Meb, you know, I, I, we, we launched a fund maybe three months ago or an investment strategy or something. They're saying, can you send me performance? And I say, sure. Or you can see it online, of course. But out of curiosity... I want to see performance before I invest. And I said, that's reasonable, whatever. But what do you hope to gain from that? And, you know, most people, I think, like, let's say you launched a strategy and they understand it, we're on board with it, and you showed them three years of very poor performance, they're less likely to be interested. And when in reality, the option is probably the correct thing to do. You know, something like managed futures or dividends or currency went through five years of terrible returns. And we talk a lot about this with uranium and coal and all these mean reversion ideas. You should be more interested, but, but that's not human nature. Humans absolutely don't want to invest in things that have done poorly recently. And that's part of the reason why the alpha probably exists. So going back to the strategies, you need to have a little bit of common sense. So with dividends, for example, you say, take a step back. You know, why have dividends worked? Well, they're kind of a value tilt. Not a particularly good one, but it gives you a little bit of value exposure. And that's why they've Dividend stocks of, and high dividends have outperformed percent or two over market cap weighting per year going back 100 years. However, right now, when we just put out a new piece called um, something like Think Growth and Income Don't Exist in This Market, Think Again, and it's on the, the Cambria website. Uh, go check it out. It's a great piece. And But it goes to show you know, this particular environment, this regime where people have been chasing yields over the past 15 years, looking for yield anywhere, you know, when, when bonds yield almost nothing, they push an asset class like dividends and they've had good returns until about last summer uh, into being in a territory where they're expensive, they have lower yield, not an attractive investment. So, and, and Rob Arnott has this awesome new feature on Research Affiliates' website. And I don't know if you've seen this yet, Jeff, but you can go on there and we'll put the link in the show notes. And they post a lot of the fa- historical factors like price to book or momentum or whatever it may be, and then show the valuation of that basket relative to history. And so you can kind of say, well, okay, look, dividends have historically been priced to outperform by a percent or two, but the basket right now is currently unattractive. And I don't know what theirs says, but we believe they're very unattractive. So I think that's what I find fascinating actually because part of the question i was going to ask is if you are a dividend investor let's say that uh a standard dividend fund is now uh 18 percent down from its peak well how do i if i'm a fledgling dividend investor you know i don't know a whole lot about 
uh, historical returns is 18% within the threshold of normal. Is that way uh, beyond the, the threshold? So uh, it sounds like uh, what our nuts putting on a site here might be pretty helpful. It goes back to your, what's your investment policy statement, you know, for the individual. And we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the year, when we talked about the zero budget portfolios that write down your investment uh, process. So listeners, how many of you actually did that? You know, raise your hand, not both hands if you're driving, but, but how many of you actually did that? Probably very few. And you should do that. If you haven't go back and read that article called zero, zero budget portfolios. And so if you're like, let's say your portfolio is, look, I'm going to do the market cap portfolio with Joe. I'm going to rebalance once a year and that's it. Then you don't even care about this. And you may check in once a year and look and say, okay, you know, I'm just checking in to see if there's anything I need to trim. But in general, you already have your policy portfolio and you don't worry about this conversation. If you're someone who's, you know, the engineer and doctors on here who love to, to fiddle with the portfolios, you go in and say, okay, look, no, I am going to have a little bit more of an active approach. Once a year, I'm going to, you know, rebalance, but also tilt away from factors that are really expensive, tilt towards things that may have done poorly, then this comes into play. But, you know, for most people with a long-term time horizon, you know, it depends on your policy portfolio. So the nice thing about having certain types of active funds, so we manage global value funds and global momentum funds, and the global value funds automatically will rebalance into the cheapest stuff. So that kind of does it for you. So you're not having to worry about, okay, well, am I getting exposed to these? Naturally, with market cap, you will be. So it just really depends on your approach and, and how much you really want to be involved. And do you think <laughs> you think you'll add any value by being involved? Most of us, uh, most of us won't. Well, I'm going to check out Arnott's site. That could be interesting to see contextually, historically, how these factors are measuring up. But let's move on so we capture some more questions here. Another thing I found interesting was uh, you tweeted about the VIX hovering on 11. You know, just because we have sustained long periods of a low VIX environment doesn't necessarily precipitate a huge uh, drawdown in the market. But, you know, what do you see when you see a VIX at this level? You know, are you thinking, you know, buy long-term leaps? Or are you just, um, is there anything actionable coming from this? Or are you just uh, sort of watching with curiosity? So volatility, you know, historically can be very mean reverting, particularly at extremes and particularly when it's very high. But you can go through these periods of multiple years where volatility just kind of bounces along the bottom here. You know, it's like it's like a fishing. You're just trolling and the, and the, the lures are sitting there bouncing, bouncing along. But I saw a couple of stats that from a few people like this measured on various levels. This is one of the least volatile starts to a year since 1960s. And that in and of itself doesn't, you know, say that things are going to explode or things are bad or things are, you know, it just, it's, it's a kind of a normal environment to be chugging along. You know, the challenge comes when you have sort of this, uh, any sort of tail event negative or a tail event, um, a black swan sort of bad event. And kind of what you're talking about, and, and we have a fund coming out around this concept of, of tail risk, is that an environment for, say, U.S. equities right now, you know, historical, historically speaking, buying puts or buying some sort of tail insurance on a portfolio is a cost. You know, much like buying uh, renter's insurance or car insurance or health insurance, that's a yearly cost. And most people don't 
think of it the same way with portfolios because they think of it as a drain on their returns. And that's true. It is historically, most of these tail strategies are have negative returns per year. Um, as an example, buying a basket of say of, of S and P puts that, you know, you continue to roll forward. However, you know, an environment like today where you have three factors, one stocks are expensive, not bubble yet, you know, but, but on the expensive side, and then volatility is low and you've had eight, nine year bull market. Um, you know, th- those are things that you would say, okay, well, maybe it makes a little more sense to be buying some sort of protection on that portfolio. Now, granted, we, we talked about a million other ways to diversify a portfolio, like using bonds, real assets and foreign stocks and cheap stocks and, and managed futures and trend following. And all those have positive expectancy. So that's the way to build the core portfolio. And so, you know, we've talked about it many times with Trinity, for example. So that's the way we, we view buying core portfolio. But there's a lot of people out there, and we need to update this article where we wrote an article maybe last year or two years ago called something like Hedger Business. And the concept was is that a lot of people, you know, have a large stock exposure that they don't either diversify or do all these other things, but also that they may not be able to. So they may say, look, I have a pension fund and it's, it's just all stocks and I can't do anything about it. Or, and this is even more important where let's say you're a financial advisor listening to this and, you know, you manage money for a, a group of individuals or an asset management company like ours, but let's say you're a traditional one. So you're mostly in us stocks and bonds, which is what most people do. Well, not only is your personal wealth probably in stocks and bonds, but your business and economic, you know, salary is also exposed to stocks and bonds because of your clients. And so when, let's say the markets have an 08 again, and your revenue goes down by 50% because your client's assets went down by 50%, and oh, by the way, your portfolio also went down by 50%, that's like tripling down. And, and so, you know, as a financial advisor or someone who manages an investment company, we said, why wouldn't someone hedge that the same way that a Southwest Airlines hedges fuel costs or a cereal company hedges wheat prices? Why wouldn't you hedge the possibility of these really down markets or poor performing S&P? And it's a very minor cost. So the worst case, all it does is uh, diversify your earnings stream and, and, and smooth it out. And we had some interesting responses from some multi-billion dollar asset managers where they said, oh, man, that's actually really interesting. We're, we're considering implementing that. I don't know if they did. And we plan on doing some with, with our parent company. But but it's something to think about that I don't think a lot of people, and a classic example, of course, is, is similar to a lot of people that have a lot of their own money in their own stock pension fan, uh, plan. Enron was a great example. But a lot of people don't realize that they have – you know, a lot of people think, say, hey, look, I have this steady salary. and Oh, I have this portfolio and, you know, I'm growing my book of business. But realize that's the same trade three ways. You know, you're betting for markets to go up. Yeah. And so I, I think I think hedging, particularly in this is a really long winded answer to your question about volatility. But in a time when volatility is cheap, like today, and you have these other coincident indicators, I think it's a totally reasonable thing. Uh, to, to want to hedge part of that portfolio. And a simple way to do it, you know, you, you always bring me back to being practical and implementation. You know, you could certainly, I would stay away from any of the VIX ETFs or any of these crazy leveraged inverse ETFs. I think they're horrible investments. 
the vast majority of them. But, you know, simple ways to buy a, a portfolio of puts. You could also wait until you say maybe you're going to say put 5% of your portfolio in, in puts. And then when the U.S. stock market closes below its 200-day or 50-day or 10-month moving average, you you up that to 10%. Because historically speaking, volatility is much higher when markets are in a downtrend and losses are much higher as well. The, the, the returns are much worse. So you could come up with some sort of plan or, or you know, we, we plan on launching a fund base on this very soon um, would be an option too. So I, I like that because, that is, I mean, when I think of – you mentioned diversification. When I think of basic asset class diversification, yeah, you're going to get some protection out of that, but you can't remember who said it on one of our podcasts, but in a truly bear market or an exploding market, correlation goes to one. And so you're going to get you know, a limited effect from your basic diversification. So it's more of a defensive play, but you know, the offensive equivalent of that, I would think, is buying puts, which are going to actively uh, really outperform if the market is getting crushed and you know, here we're, we're at, you know, again, VIX of 11, that's pretty, pretty damn cheap if you're buying insurance. But as you pointed out, you know, th- you can continue paying for that for longer than you potentially want to, because the markets obviously can continue to climb uh, past the point where you rationally think they should. So. And you have most asset classes, right? So m- most asset classes, it's, it's a bit of a roll of the dice. Will they diversify? a U.S. stock portfolio. So going from like least consistent would be something like global stocks. Like if U.S. stocks go down 50%, is it possible that foreign stocks are up? Sure. But, you know, chances are that they're still stocks and, and the correlation is, is very high and chances are they'll probably also be down. You know, and then, you know, emerging market bonds and other risky assets, um, you know, will likely be down as well. Stuff like real assets, so commodities and REITs, tips, it just kind of depends. And so 2000, 2003 bear market, they did awesome. 2008 bear market, they did horrible because it was that disinflationary deflation sort of a, a bear market. So they all did very poorly as well. Trend following, you know, is one of the best historical diversifiers, managed futures or through global momentum and trend funds. Um, but again, it's not guaranteed. So you have a market like right now, for example, everything is going up. Almost everything is going up. Long bonds, maybe not. Some other, some other. Uh, I think um, precious metals kind of been waffling. Maybe ags, but almost everything else is going up. And this is a scenario where you kind of have the, the sharp downdraft, where if you have like a 1987 style event, where trend following is not fast enough to to catch up, where you have that risk that nothing diversifies. Maybe U.S. government bonds do. They've historically been one of the best. Diversifiers, but at these low levels, is that guaranteed? No. I mean, they, it's not a 10 out of 10. If you look at the worst months or years in S&P, it's not like it's 100% guaranteed that U.S. bonds will do well. You know, most of the time, it's like 80% do they? Yes, but but it's not guaranteed. So, you know, I think that is a totally reasonable um, addition to a portfolio. Certainly, if it lets you sleep better at night, to at least have something that's going to protect if everything hits the fan and make you feel better. I, I don't, despite the fact that it may reduce your return, you know, you think about it the same way as, as buying, again, going back to, to car insurance or health insurance or even pet insurance. You know, almost no one I know, by the way, owns pet insurance, and almost everyone I know's dog ends up getting sick or has some surgery. And they're like, oh my God, I just spent $3,000 on my dog. I wish I had pet insurance, but, but all of those, the same thing, you, you see it as it's, you don't see it as a, 
you know, draw on returns, but rather just helps you sleep at night, not, not sweat it. Well, so let's actually uh, dig into the implementation just in case any listeners are uh, intrigued by this conversation topic. So how much of your portfolio percentage wise do you think would be reasonable to uh, throw towards a basket of puts each month, knowing you might have to re up the cost each month? And then second part of that is ties into the cost of it. Here we are at a VIX of 11, which is uh, historically pretty cheap, but you get around that VIX level of 20, tending to separate uh, a calmer market from a more uh, fearful market. Is there a price at which you slow down buying because it's getting too expensive? Like, How do you measure that out? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I like to stay away from getting into esoteric trading strategies and, and, and trading options and buying puts, you know, starting to give advice or thoughts on that is, is I'm definitely not going to go down that rabbit hole, but because because options for a lot of people are, are, are fairly foreign um, investments. But in general, look, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could do it. You could simply buy a ladder of puts. You could buy a 12-month put and roll it once a quarter. That's pretty simple. You could buy, you know, depending on your idea, you could even get more sophisticated with, you know, selling call, buying, but all sorts of different ideas that um, may reduce the carry cost of buying puts. I mean, the simplest is just to buy a put and roll it whenever you feel like it is a reasonable amount of time. Um, you know, there are no funds that do it in that traditional way, which is why we're launching one. And I, I have no interest in, in talking about our funds or marketing on this podcast, but there's a, the problem with a lot of the products today is you have these like weird VIX funds that decline 99%, you know, over a couple of years. And they are just these massively volatile, poorly designed products. And whereas for most people, all they really need is this basic, you know, ladder of, of us stock puts, for example, but, but we mentioned a couple of different ways to implement it. Like whether, whether you're a trend follower and you want to do it when markets start declining, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, kind of leave it up to you and your own personal scenario as far as how much to put in them. Again, it totally depends on what your portfolio and exposure is. So someone like a financial advisor who has his entire life, own portfolio, client's portfolio, and book of business all exposed to the same risk factor is much, much more than, you know, someone who has a diversified portfolio with momentum and trend and bonds and everything else that works as a college professor, you know, and has a steady pension. And none of this is related to uh, financial markets, right? So it, it goes back to this, and, and Morningstar talks a lot about this, as do a lot of other papers, you know, looking at your not just your asset allocation, but also including your human capital as well as your exposure and your pensions and other areas to what, what is your true exposure, you know, not just your portfolio. Um, because a lot of times people can have this, you know, multiplier effect on their own portfolio and risks versus someone who may have a very much more robust job or, you know, career path that's, that's, future proof, you know, and we say like, is a robot going to take your job in five years? No. Are you something that has a, a very steady stream of earnings and revenue with the pension fund, you know, all these other things that's much more robust than say like a financial advisor who historically charges, you know, 2%, you're, you're, you know, not only is your business at risk from potential robots and, and other commoditization, but you have the same global risk, which is just equities. You know, you're, you're, tied yourself to a equities bull market, you know, nine different ways. So in that later case, I think it's a much higher percentage than, than in the former. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, speaking of equities and returns, another one of your tweets 
uh, referenced a study by Newfound that the 64 model is predicted to do 0% through 2025. So I was curious if you posted that because, one, you, you believe it as well, or uh, if, you, if you don't, and then what you're doing with it, if anything, um, what's your takeaway from a 0% for nearly another decade? Well, look, we, we've written a lot about valuations and projecting future returns and what to do about it. You know, and, and also the things that we tweet about and retweet and like, and the same thing on the idea farm is we like to expose readers to all sorts of opinions. And we'll get emails back like, man, how could you send this out? This is so stupid. I can't believe you agree with this. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. you know, I didn't say I agree with it. And then, and they're like, you know, he's a terrible money manager. Why are you resending out his research? Say, look, I'm all about just improving my process. So if I have a belief or a system and someone comes out with an article or research, it's the flip side of that. You know, we've seen this with politics and everything else. Like we don't want to live in this echo chamber. I want all day to read stuff that conflicts my views. And so if there's ideas or comments, I mean, and Buffett's is a great example where he said the stock market is cheap if you take interest rates into effect. And there is no evidence for that. There's zero. You cannot come up with a model. I don't know of a single model that you can come up with that backs up his claim. Right? So if you do, listeners, you find one, send it to me. Don't even start with the Fed model. That, that's the worst um, example of that, by the way. So, but, but, but I want to see, I want our views to be challenged. And so I'll often retweet favorite things that I may not necessarily agree with, but either that I want to read later or that I think are interesting. In the newfound case, I actually do largely agree with them. I mean, look, U.S. bonds, incredibly easy to forecast the returns. It's simply the yield. So you call the, the 10 or 30-year bonds, the, you're getting a couple percent. Um, equities, again, we think they're going to be low. You know, let's call it sub-5% at this point. So you know, let's say you get a couple percentage points, maybe two, and then after inflation, real zero. And there's been a dozen different shops that talk about this. You know, I think uh, AQR has said this is the lowest returns for 60-40 in a century. Research Affiliates put out a fun piece where they said the same thing. They said 0% returns expected. And in the article, it's funny because they said, actually, that's super rounding because it's 0.3% or something. And I got a bunch of howling emails about this. Anyway, um, but, but so what do you do about that? Well, there's a lot of things you do. And we've talked about this in Trinity Portfolio, many of our research pieces and books. You know, the first thing you do is start with a global market portfolio to move away from U.S. assets. So foreign and emerging, we're expecting to do um, historical rates of return or more. Emerging markets, we think, are really cheap. And finally, you know, I'm, I'm happy that the past nine months, we've really started to see the world view uh, align with ours. So, you know, a year or two before that, it was not the case, 2014, really. But, but, but the cheap stuff has been catching the momentum. So that's why you've been seeing the explosive returns in foreign markets really start to take the lead, as well as emerging markets and the stuff like Brazil and Russia up, you know, massive amounts. And so, um, the first thing you do is diversify, right? You, you invest in foreign bonds, you invest in foreign stocks, you invest in cheap markets in general, um, and then real assets. And then the, that's the global market portfolio. And to me, that is the starting point, right, where you go from there. And then uh, we added trend following in our Trinity uh, paper as well um, that I think is a great diversifier. You know, these are all things you can do to kind of move away from that 0% return. 
Sort of switching gears, um, a different conversation topic. One of the tweets was about Cliff Asnes, and he was poking a little fun at, um, might have been Fidelity, how they were touting that their fees are lower. I can't really remember. Basically, the, the fee differential was five bips to four and a half bips in one of the examples, which Asnes had called deeply irrelevant. No, but, but, but read, 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 the, read the whole tweet. Do you have it in front of you? Moving from 150 bips to 25 bips, huge. Moving from 25 bips to 10 bips, okay, but not huge. The move from five to four and a half, deeply irrelevant. Well, my question wasn't going to be so much on the fee changes. We can talk about that, but I was pulling back a little bit more broadly. What your take personally is on where we've gone with robos and where we're going, um, I'm curious both from a retail investor perspective, what you know they might have to look forward to, but also for advisors who might be listening, you know what the best way to position themselves are. Because um, you know, on one hand, we have this growing movement towards this you know, robot culture, but you can't really replace the human element as well. You know, where do you see this going, and how do you benefit from it? All right, there's there's a lot in there, but but first is in general, this is we've written an article called "It's a Wonderful Time to Be Investor," you know, a year or two ago, which is basically showing this trend where it's getting much much cheaper to to invest in almost anything, and so we have this scenario where, you know, it's funny as the robots started coming out, the wealth fronts and betterments of the world, we saw. Fee compression, you know, the average advisor charges a percent, average mutual fund is 1.25%, average ETF is half a percent, but you can really get a global portfolio now for less than 0.3%. So you had all these robo-advisors come out and they charge around a quarter of a percent, so 25 basis points, and then they invest in a portfolio that costs another 15. So it gets you that kind of 40 basis point range for all in. And the cool thing about that is that, yes, it's much cheaper. But then you saw this like infighting, like Wellfront was particularly bad about this, where they kept calling out all these other shops like Schwab and then um, Betterment, where they're like, oh my God, and you know, in catfighting about what, what Cliff just described, which is kind of like these minor couple basis points, right? So to me, like the big move was from, hey, you're not getting charged 2% anymore, you're getting charged 0.25%. So whether you're getting charged 0.25% or 0.2% is largely irrelevant. Like you did the big muscle movement. You got 90% of the way there. Like that's what matters. What, it doesn't matter now at this point. So the good news is there is a litany of just there's so many choices out there that are great. And it's easy to be a great investor now. So as an example, you know, we – launched a, a 0% management fee ETF, invest in a fund of funds, so all in, it's like 25 basis points. You know, that's, and then there's about three other asset allocation ETFs that you can buy, and you get exposure basically to the whole world for about a quarter percent. That's like the cheapest way to do it, right? You could, you could try to put together a portfolio with cobble together some ETFs that'll be even lower, um, but they're, they're the more traditional market cap indices. So that's awesome, right? What a great revolution that was. Well, there's plenty of other decent ways to do it. And I don't even have a problem with the financial advisor to the extent they add value in other areas. You know, we think they're worth their weight in gold. If, if they add behavioral coaching, if they keep you from doing dumb stuff, if they do estate planning, wealth management, insurance, all these other value added things and charge a percent. I think that's totally fine. You know, Schwab and Vanguard have set the bar now where 
you get a financial advisor with those shops for 0.3%. I think Schwab is 0.28, of course, because they're trying to come in lower than Vanguard. But, but, and that's kind of an advisor light, right? Like you're not going to get probably the white glove service and truly the best, you know, family office style advice that you would get from a lot of the more traditional family offices that are, that are more experts. This is kind of like a, kind of like a, what was the right word? Uh, uh, I don't want to say call center of, of CFPs because I haven't been through it. Maybe they are super high quality. But well, the good news is you can get a portfolio and advice for very cheap now. And so, but that hasn't even begun to disrupt the space yet. Like there's still a long way to go on on most of the traditional industry still being way more expensive. Well, so if the real value add for advisors is we're moving towards whatever uh, proprietary non-strategy related value add that they can add themselves. And, and then in essence, they're outsourcing the market strategy itself. You know, where's that going? Is everything just being commoditized or is it going to boil down to basically if you pick active versus passive and that's really the, the, the key difference? Look, we've, we've said for a long time that asset allocation from a market cap perspective is a commodity. If you the global asset, asset portfolio, we've shown in our book, um, Global Asset Allocation, you get a free copy online, freebook.medsaver.com. Download and see that most asset class allocations, it doesn't really matter what you invest in, but what matters more is you pay low fees. Now, Certainly, will there still be hedge funds and higher fee funds 20 years from now that add value by doing X, Y, Z? Absolutely. If you can, if you can outperform the market or do it with much lower volatility and risk, you'll still be able to raise $10 billion and charge as much as you want. But, but that game every year gets harder and harder. You know, everyone has the smartest PhDs on the planet working on this stuff. You know, there's a gazillion CFAs now. It's not as easy as it was in the 60s and 70s, 80s. It wasn't easy then, even. So, yes, I see the industry evolving into low-cost asset allocation. You know, I, I think financial advisors in general will embrace most of the technology, and I think that is a fairly future-proof job as long as you do add value. And that can be a personality value. It can be emotional value. It can be actual, you know, trust in the state. So most of these advisors will learn to embrace the software and say, hey, I'm going to use this amazing software suite from Morningstar or whomever and be able to implement and provide the best advice for these clients, whereas, you know, before maybe they weren't software-assisted. So they become a little more cyborg, what we call it, you know, cyborg advisors where Mm -hmm. they're using the technology to assist them. The ones that are going to be in trouble are the ones that charge 2%. And just do asset allocation. I mean, I think the brokers, you know, that whole whole business model, you know, what despite whatever the DOL rules, I mean that that is going to die a, a a quick a quick death no matter what. I mean, you see the flows every year. I think that's going to be a very hard business model to sustain. You know, even five years from now. Okay, let's uh, let's pull it back to the market. Another one of your tweets referenced how the last time stock market newsletters were this bullish was in January 1987. And, you know, Doug Ramsey in our podcast said this is the most optimistic he's seen people in the last eight years. So 
when you hear that, do you personally, Meb, do you get nervous? Is, is that hold more weight to you? Uh, I know you're a big cape guy, so you're obviously eyeing the cape. But does one of these things hold more influence over you and your own gut on where the markets are going than anything else? Yeah, I mean, usually it's coincident indicators. So valuation when times are good and stocks are going up and they're getting more expensive, everyone feels good, right? You're making money, your portfolio is going up, you're buying a new house, you're thinking about the vacations you're going to take. So a lot of these happen at the same time. And so going back to the sentiment indicators, yes, a lot of them historically, you look at when they peaked and when they got the highest, of course, it was when you know, markets hit their, their peaks. So the highest the AAII has ever been was January 2000. And the lowest it's ever been was March 2009. So you see these, but, but you expect them, and it's not surprising. Does that mean the market can't go higher? Absolutely not. Go higher for a year, five years, who knows? But, but it's things you see. And so here's an example, and this is one of the tweets, by the way, and you'll have to read it, but it's something like, is a, a Twitter ad and an ad online where Mike Tyson is now advertising <laughs> yeah. some date, like some trading platform, right? What's it called? Yep. Like Trade it's, Twelve uh, or something? Take, take Twelve, something like that. Trade. Yeah. Trade Twelve. Yeah. So, go back to the commercials of the last cycle, 2007, and remember, you know what was going on. Ric Flair, the wrestler, you know, Nature Boy, was advertising mortgage uh, loans. You know, and refinancing. And so you see this dumb stuff happening. And, and you, you just see, you see, the longer you're in business, you start to see these kind of coincident indicators. So, for example, Snapchat just went public. You know, 20 something CEO, the shares don't vote, massively billion dollar, you know, market cap, all these things that are just sort of like, huh. And my favorite um, tweet about that was that. Journal said there's, a, there's an app that millennials love called Robinhood, which offers free executions, which I, I think is awesome. I think it's a great thing for investors. You can trade for free. Granted, that's, you know, again, like, like giving arsonists a match, right? Like you, you don't need to be trading, but if you do trade, it's great that it's free. You know, most brokers, by the way, are, have been lowering their trading costs down to like five bucks. But they had a stat. They said that almost half of, of Robinhood brokerage clients bought Snapchat the day of the IPO. Wow. And, I mean, that, that's, that's another classic sign of you're getting pretty late in the cycle when people are chasing these hot IPO lottery stocks. And then my, Josh Brown, a former broker, had a great tweet. And he goes, he quoted something like half of the – Half of Robinhood millennials bought Snap on the day of the IPO. 99% are now below water. Um, but, but people tend to chase the lottery tickets later in the cycle because, you know, they, they are younger investors, newer investors, or just see all their friends getting rich, see the headlines, but they start going into these lottery stocks with the hopes that they'll go up. And, and late in bubbles, and I'm not saying we're in a bubble yet, but late in market cycles, you often have the, the kind of blow off top return. So the returns start to accelerate and you have these big returns because it's kind of a self reinforcing cycle. Um, so could we have 20% ahead from here? Sure. Could have 50%. And I always say, I love bubbles. They're fun, but it's, um, it's, it's a time when many people burn themselves and it sets the stage for the next bear market. And then, you know, they all wash out and will never invest again. And that's a stage for the next bull. So, the things like the Mike Tyson ads, I'm sure we'll start to see more of them. So readers, if you find some particularly readers, I always say that 
listeners, if you find any uh, particularly grievous examples of, um, you know, the Mike Tyson ad, send them over and we'll, we'll share them. You saw uh, Charlie Munger speak last week or two weeks ago. Did he say anything about uh, where we are in the cycle here? Man, he's awesome. I, you know, I, 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 he's a national treasure. I, I love Charlie Munger. So I went down to the, um, he does an annual board meeting because he's on the, the board for the Daily Journal, a little newspaper that he bought uh, years ago. And so kind of like the Omaha speech, he just holds court for an hour or two and the room, it's actually a functioning office, which I was laughing at because there's people trying to work in the office, which was really funny. But <laughs> I went and sat and listened and so happy I did. I mean, he's in his 90s and is as, as sharp as ever. And you can find some transcripts of his uh, speech and we'll post them to the show notes uh, where he talks about, you know, everything that day. And um, I mean, just, just a, if you have the chance, he's, <laughs> he's not going to be around much longer. Um, but still, I mean, as sharp as anyone I've ever met in these, in these in his nineties, uh, you weren't expecting this one, but you kind of led us off today with a little bit of a summation on where we've come and where we've been with our podcast around six months or so. I'm curious, uh, in all the podcasts we've done so far, is there any advice or perspectives uh, that stand out in your mind as especially noteworthy or on the money or something that really has influenced you? Yeah, I mean, look, we, 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 I, I think the most downloaded often correlate to some of the most interesting, but for the people that have joined us in the last few months, you know, you may have mentioned some of the early ones with Wes Gray or Jerry Billion, and a lot of those early ones are equally as interesting. They just, most people kind of start at the newest and keep up or, or go backwards, but some of the early ones are really a lot of fun, and you can probably also notice quite a difference in uh, quality, and hopefully we're getting better, not worse. You know, but the podcast space is interesting. I was actually reading an article on this guy who's a um, supernatural thriller writer and works as a graphic design, you know, in his in his day job to be able to support his writing because most of us know writing is for the vast, vast, long tail of writers, not a uh, not a career, not a profitable endeavor, and we've learned that through five books. But it goes to show that so he would do a lot of deep dive research into things when he was writing his books. And then he, so he'd learn a bunch of interesting stuff, but then, you know, say, what, what am I going to do with this? This is kind of useless. And so he wrote up like a P- PDF on, so he was researching like vampires and New England in the 19th century or 18th century or something. So he wrote a PDF and then just, you know, it was like five pages and says, this is really interesting, but what am I going to do with it? I have no, nowhere to, so he tossed it in the trash can of his, you know, laptop. And he said, no, I'm just sending it to a friend. Maybe he might find this interesting. And the friend's like, oh, man, this is really cool. Maybe you should turn this into a podcast. And the guy's podcast is named Lore. I actually listened to it yesterday. It's not not my thing, but he now has 5 million downloads per month. Quit his job. Now just runs this podcast doing research as a way to promote his books. And Amazon just bought the rights and is turning it into a TV series. <laughs> it's all about, it's <laughs> about vampires. Never, the whole the whole podcast is just I vampires. I, you have to look it up. I think it's just about um, his research and the supernatural kind of thriller ideas um, oh. and putting it into. I, I don't know, but my whole point is: look, we would love to expand this into any ways that I think readers find interesting. And it's funny because. Like going back to the early days when we were doing some of these written or sorry, audio books where I would just read a research piece, 
we would get emails in from y'all that would say, oh my God, that was awesome. I loved it. I never would read your book, but so glad you did this audio version. And then a bunch of other people say, oh my God, Matt, this is so boring. You're monotone reading this book. This is like my worst nightmare. Don't ever do that again. So you never know, <laughs> but, but we have um, a lot of material and ideas that we can go down. So send us, send us your ideas. If you guys got any thoughts, uh, we'd love to hear feedback on that favorite show and we can, we can incorporate them. All right, Meb, last uh, conversation topic. You had been uh, chatting with me the other day about uh, Tony Robbins. I think you had some opinions on that. Do you want to share those with us right now? Um, you know, well, you know, Tony, uh, I think, is a, a very decent individual. I mean, he sounds like uh, a very thoughtful person, has helped a lot of people. You know, he, he put out a book that we reviewed last year called Money. It was like 700 pages, kind of, kind of scattered. But in general, had some good elements to it, and he was adopting sort of the risk parity ideas of, of Ray Dalio, who I think is stepping down from Bridgewater. But he just put out a new book and, and podcast as well called Unshakable. And it's interesting, and, and we'll read the book and do a longer um, kind of treatise on it on the blog. But, you know, so he ended up partnering. So in his first book, he had this kind of questionable relationship with the money manager he was sending people to, but, it, you know, it, it was very unclear. And so in this new book, which he co-authors with a, a big money manager called Creative Planning, um, it's kind of like a, a, a long treaty. And, and, and what's interesting is that if you look at his message, you know, we say that he gets the diagnosis correct, but the prescription wrong, meaning he says, look, you know, most people um, use advisors that aren't fiduciaries. So checkbox, absolutely agree. Second is that most of the fiduciaries charge way too much and you should use index funds. Check the box. Absolutely agree. So all these things, and I think he has honest intentions. And then, but the problem is he partnered with this group and he says, all right, well, the solution is to invest with our offering, you know, and for people, I think under like 2 million, it charges 1.2% per year. And it's not horrific. Like it's not the worst thing you could do you could go find someone that you could pay two three percent a year wait, are, wait, are they purely active no it's it's, it's buy and hold passive so that, that's the advisor fee and they still additionally charge fees on the portfolio which is you know traditional index based vanguard swap yada yada so it's not awful but but if you fought like if you follow the diagnosis the natural conclusion would not be his offering it would be a robo-advisor, a buy-and-hold asset allocation ETF, all of these other things. And in 1.2% is, you know, the average financial advisor is 1%, and most now are below that, you know, 80 bips, and in many cases below that. So it's Schwab and Vanguard, 30 bips. So the, the correct, you know, so like, so, so then once you see it through that lens, you're like, okay, well, how much of this is just marketing for his new offering? And he's a little Trump-like, like he makes a lot of claims in the podcast and stuff that just, you know, aren't really true. He's like, well, with volatility at all-time highs and volatility exploding, and, you know, we talked about it earlier in the podcast, we're like, well, well, no, it's actually, this is like the lowest volatility markets have been in, you know, many years, in some cases back in the 60s, you know, and, and other things like, he's like, you know, Paul Tudor Jones has never lost money. Well, that's also not true. Like, I'm, you know, so there's a lot of things and claims, but, and, but again, I, I go back to this, look, yeah, I'm sure he has good intentions. He's donating all the books to feed the poor, wonderful, probably a decent human being, but I don't know if it's a question of just simply he 
you know, this is an offering that he believes in and that thinks it's worth 1.2%. But with my, and again, I hold my, my, uh, my final judgment until I go read the book, but, but in general, it doesn't seem like if you're a doctor that the, the diagnosis really matches up with, with, uh, the prescription. Yeah. Well, I mean, sounds like, you know, caveat emptor, you know, just everybody do your research and, uh, Make your own final decisions based upon everything that you know to be true, and don't take somebody else's word at it uh, as as a sort of Bible. Um, all right, Matt, we're right here at an hour. Why don't you uh, take us out, listeners? Thanks for taking the time to listen today. We always welcome feedback and questions uh, for the mailbag at feedback at mebfavorshow dot com. As a reminder, you can find the show notes at mebfaber dot com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, and if you're enjoying the podcast, hey, Jeff requests, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.